Well, I'd invite you to take a Bible in the seat in front of you and to turn to the very last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, page 869. And we're going to read, I'm going to read um, beginning in chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, page 869 in the church Bibles. And at the end, there's going to be a scripture that I'm going to invite us to read together, and I'll, I'll give you the get ready, and we'll do it together. It's a little lengthy reading. Let's hear the word of the Lord. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of these four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God who sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain 
And with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. Now, if you would just read this with me. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. If you would, please, let's bow together. And may God bless the reading of his word this Christmas Eve. Father, Son, and Spirit, will you please provide uh, the exposition of the Scripture, the illumination and the imagination of our minds, passion in our hearts, and help. God, everything of consequence depends on entirely on you. And so we look to you now for mercy, for your son's sake and his glory. Amen. Well, one of the great wonders in God's creation of the human mind is the God-given ability to imagine. And by imagination, I mean forming ideas or images not present to our senses, at least not yet, but somehow developed in our mind. And fundamental to Christianity is our belief that we do live in an open universe and there's something that exists outside of this, something next, something unseen, which is good and it is lasting and it's honestly coming and therefore it will be seen. So by imagination... As I'm using it here, it's much more than um, escapism rooted in fantasy, which does have some use, and to me it has a lot of appeal. Rather, it's imagination used to consider God so that we might love Him more, understand Him better, or perhaps love Him and understand Him for the first time ever, particularly in light of the judgment to come. Now, let me just say that again. To use our imagination is to consider God so that we can love Him more, understand Him better, and perhaps maybe for some, for the first time ever. Now, I was fortunate enough to live in a home where the use of our imagination was very much encouraged and it was very much needed. There were eight kids, six boys, but I promise you, on Christmas Eve night in our home, a whole lot of things were happening. People were probably getting in trouble, I don't know. But the one thing that was certain, that the night before Christmas, and all through the house, <laughs> the friends' own children were nestled all in their beds, snug, and they had visions, you know this, of sugar plums, toys, dancing in their heads. It was fantastic. It was a treat. We were imagining that. You know, Albert Einstein said the true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. 
So think of the many books written which were taken to a deserted island, uh, were taken to a wonderland, knights of the round table, taken to the future, were taken to a planet of apes, a galaxy far, far away, Gotham City, Metropolis, some desperate circumstance we are taken to where a hero is needed and she shows up. Each of these things dealing in some way, um, maybe even in a medicinal way, some kind of medicinal mechanism that deals with the difficulties of life, the dullness of life, the depressions of life, and to some extent fueling, fueling us for the future. So someone imagined a long, long time ago, hey, maybe there's some way to fly. Someone imagined a long time ago, outer space. Maybe we can get there. Or how about this? Oh my, do you think, do you really think we can find a cure for cancer? All of this from our imagination. And if you think about it, so much of the Christmas story demands the use of our imagination. For example, the angel appearing to Mary and to Joseph and to the shepherds and all that transpired in those scenes. What was that like? The wise men following a star. Can you imagine what that would be like? Babies born around the same time of Christ. Baby boys slaughtered by an evil king because of Christ. And of course, the reading we just heard, I mean, we were probably going through that, and some of you are like, where in the world is he going with this on Christmas Eve? But apparently, parts of the Bible are written where we have to use our imagination in order to imagine realities not present yet to our senses, but are part of our faith. And as you think about it, what better book than the book of Revelation? What better time than Christmas time? And what better night? A magical night. Christmas Eve. The night before we celebrate the fact that Jesus was born and that Jesus died and that Jesus is our righteousness and Jesus will return. What better night to use our imagination as the language God has given us from his word It calls for our imagination. Now the writer is John. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's in exile because he preached that Jesus Christ was born. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is your only hope in life and death. Jesus Christ is deity clothed in humanity. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can get you past death and the judgment to come. And as he's writing to the first recipients of this letter, they were in a context where the Roman authorities were beginning this massive beatdown and forcing the worship of Caesar as Lord, as God. And Christians who said, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, they couldn't do that. The fallout, of course, was Christians were facing death. They were dying in great numbers. Their life blood was being spilt because of the gospel. Others had that threat always hanging over them. Life, in one sense, was constant tension, constant strain. They were living on the edge. And for some of those Christians, it was becoming unbearable. And they were actually considering that the denial of Jesus Christ might be a possible way to relieve them from this misery. And their question, in many ways, was a worship question. Is Jesus Christ really worth all this? Is this gospel message really true? Does the birth of Christ, does the death of Christ on the Christ cross, does it mean anything at all? 
tell me, is this all a waste? Can it sustain me and really get me past this life of pain and uncertainty and really get me past death? Have you ever thought that way? I can promise you, within the past eight months and many times before, I have thought that way. And if you think about it, don't these chapters almost have a medicinal quality to it? Almost as if John, under God, is saying, come with me. Let's leave this broken world for a moment and let me take you to a better world and let me give you a picture of what is honestly coming. Use your imagination and take a glimpse of the throne of God. That throne which will sustain you in the midst of all the hostility and all the sorrow you are right now facing. And I promise you, because of that throne, because of that throne in heaven, things will be set right on earth. And therefore, you'll have an answer to your question, is Jesus really true? And is all this Jesus stuff really worth it? Now, the central theme of these chapters is the throne of God. It's central because it's a picture of authority. And if you think about it, if you're paying attention, this, this reads like one great musical production. And we are invited to look in and to imagine a worship service taking place in heaven, if you like, in four movements. The first of the four movements begin in chapter 4. I hope your Bible's open because you'll see this. Four creatures with six wings, with eyes all around them. Imagine that. And they are in a continuous loop of singing a worship song to God. And they're declaring theology. That's what worship does. Theology on God's holiness, verse 8, chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy. Father, Son, Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is, to, is, and is to come. That's followed by 24 elders who worship God as creator. See it in verse 11? Everything, God. All of creation exists because of you, God. And this is great because true worship declares theology. Worship is singing about God, to God, declaring God. Then comes the third movement. It's, it's chapter 5 with those creatures and the elders together worshiping the Lamb as Redeemer. It's chapter 5, verse 8. Imagine this. They have one hand holding a harp, another with a golden bowl filled with incense, which are our prayers. So your prayers smell. <laughs> It's great. They smell good, I'm sure, but they still smell. And they're all worshiping God. And what are they doing? They're singing the gospel, verse 9. Do you see it there? With your blood you purchase human beings for God. Then, now see, the crowd is growing. Then voices of thousands, tens of thousands of angels sing more gospel. Chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive everything, right? Everything ending with honor and glory and praise. Finally, the fourth movement, where you have the four living creatures, the 24 elders, all the angels, and all of heaven, and all of earth. Imagine that. You see verse 13 of chapter 5? Under the earth and the sea, and all creation in heaven and on earth, singing. Now, what does that sound like? That's like a Disney musical movie, right? With all those singing animals. Music and worship is serious business in heaven. And what do they say? It's a, it's, 
everybody is saying this, whether they believe it or not. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praised and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's heaven. The worship of God as creator. The worship of God as redeemer. The Lamb slain. The Lamb on the throne. That is dominating heaven. Minds can be stirred and life can be stabilized with those true songs. And by the way, when you see the word worship in the New Testament, it has a lot of meanings, one of which is to bow down to a superior. So this is reverence. This is allegiance. And again, the whole question which needed to be answered and still needs to be answered. Why would a person want to bow down before God and his son, Jesus Christ? Why would a person want to bow down before God and his son, Jesus Christ? I mean, if you bow down to someone, you acknowledge them as an authority over you. So remember the question? What was the issue these first readers were facing? Caesar says, we have to bow down to him. We will die if we don't. Jesus Christ, are you able to help us in that? Are you able to get us past death? Are you worth all of this? And loved ones, as if you're thinking, what is the issue perhaps for some of us this evening? Is God real? Is Jesus worth it? What, what's the nature of his worth? What is the nature of his worth that would make me want to bow down to him and change the fundamental direction of my life? Is this whole Christmas story just a feel-good story? Or does it have staying power? Can he, Jesus, fill this void? Can he, Jesus, calm my fears, deal with me honestly at the core of who I am? Because if all this Christian stuff is about being good all the time, then I can't do that. Should I bow down to the lamb who was slain? Is he worth it? Loved ones, that is the most fundamental question a person may ask. To who will you bow down to and why? That's the question. It's fine to ask it. Here's John answers, answered, final point. So we talked about the worship of God, the question of God, and the answer is found on the throne of God. Now we can't go into great detail, but we'll go into enough. It will help you if you just follow along. along. Chapter 4, verse 1, John tells us there's a door into heaven. Now do you remember Narnia? And remember the shock of the white witch when she discovered there's a door? Meaning there's something more to Narnia than just Narnia? So heaven is not sealed up and neither is this material world. There are things coming and going out of heaven all the time which, which transcends this seen world. A door into another world. Now pay attention. A door into another world which we have to account for. And one day we'll have to give an account too. And then as you peek through the door, you'll find there's a throne. Uh, verse 2. And John tells us the throne is occupied by a person. Verse 3. One sat on it. So this is not a force. This is God. God is august. He is majestic. He is spirit. But he dwells in unapproachable light. His appearance is like marvelous light. And then the throne has some details one of which is in the vertical direction. Verse 3, there's a rainbow. And that's the use of symbolism. So symbolism isn't code. This is clear. 
This is not a secret message. This is the use of a symbol to tell us what it is and what it means. So the rainbow resembles an emerald, and that's the color green. By the way, optometrists tell us that green is the softest color known to the human eye. And if you ask yourself, what is a rainbow doing connected to the throne of God? It will take your imagination all the way back to Genesis, where the rainbow's meaning was given as God setting limits on his judgment. So if you like the throne and the rainbow encircling it, reminds us that there are boundaries on God's judgment. Because when he judged the ancient world, the story of Noah, he offered a way of salvation. He offered people grace. He offered people a way out of his judgment. Indeed, the rainbow reminds us that what is said elsewhere in the New Testament, that God's throne is a throne of grace. Now, isn't this true? There are some thrones which have no grace. There are thrones that are wicked and unjust and simply serve itself. You see, when we ask the question, why should I bow down to the one on this throne? Part of our answer is God governs by grace. And God's grace isn't do whatever you like. God God has you covered. No, grace is you did whatever you liked. And my grace given in my son, his birth and death and resurrection covers you to pay for that sin. And by my grace, by the way, messengers explain to you the gospel. And by my grace, my spirit, chapter 4, verse 5, was sent from my throne, making you aware of the gospel and ultimately made you alive so that you can believe and receive the gospel. That was all grace. My throne acknowledges guilt and will make judgment. But my throne gives grace. Have you ever thought of this? That you and I exist... And we are kept because the one on the throne wants us to be. Tell me where you'll find a religion like that, a philosophy like that. Tell me where you find a government like that. Tell me where people are thinking like that. A door, a throne, a rainbow, a government of grace. Finally, chapter 5, this scroll in which the values of God's throne are revealed. So we find, verse 1, a scroll, 7, sealed. Verse 2, a strong angel asking this question in a loud voice. Verse 2, chapter 5, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And you see it there. No one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now you've got to ask yourself this question. Why is he weeping? Those seals, when open, will unleash God's terrible judgment. Why are you weeping over that, John? Are, are, you, are you twisted? No, no, listen. John is crying because it looks as though God's judgment won't be unleashed. Why? Well, this is a moral universe, but it has gone wrong. The seals open will judge those in denial and rebellion to God, both the seen and the unseen world. And they will end evil forever. So John is weeping because he wants things to finally be set right. The seals open will begin to do that because justice applied produces what? What does justice apply produce? Well, it produces peace. 
And ultimate justice applied produces what? Ultimate, eternal peace. Because evil has been decisively dealt with. So in verse 5, John is told not to weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, more symbolism. He can open the seal. And John sees the lamb wounded. Verse 6, looking at as it was slain. He'll open the seals. Loved one, who, who is the lamb that was slain? Jesus Christ. The lamb has a horn, a symbol of power. Eyes, seven of them, having to do with ultimate wisdom. Jesus Christ, this is Colossians 2, that one, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this little lamb who was slain is a lamb which will unleash God's judgment on evil. On evil. And so God makes a way out through Jesus. But God ultimately will punish evil for those who reject him. The seal of judgment means God is going to make everything right forever. No more evil, no more pain, no sickness, no more lies, no more death, no more mass murders. And finally, total equality. Finally, true justice applies. Finally, no one feels better or worse than anyone else. Finally, everything and everyone is made right. Now you tell me who in their right mind would not long for that day. And man as man has tried everything to bring that kind of world to this world. But they have been met with continuous years of failure. But God will not fail. The day is coming. The day is coming. And loved ones, when you come to the place, and we'll end with this, when you come to the place as I had to a long time ago, and I acknowledge that I am part of the problem of the immorality in this universe, that I'm part of the rebellion, and I need mercy. When you come to that place, then you're going to be able to bow down to the one on the throne because you believe him. And when you come to that place, if you had a little trouble singing when all this started, you won't have trouble singing anymore because you believe him. And you want to be part of the choir singing to the Lamb on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that's John's answer to the, is Jesus Christ worth all this? If Jesus is God, and He is, we cannot think that we've heard the end of Him. Peace is coming. Peace is coming. Think of it this way. Christmas forever is coming. Yeah, that's good. Let's pray. God and Father, thank you for those two chapters. Thank you that even on Christmas Eve night, they have meaning and they have value. Father, by your Spirit, make your truth come alive in all our hearts. There's some response that's needed. 
please, God, enable all of us to, to respond in a way that is in keeping with your will and ordering everything to your glory. For Jesus' sake, we pray this. Amen.